Okay, I'm going to be using this phrase a lot because this is something that God has been ministering to me so much, and I know I've said it to you before, but God has a plan. He always has a plan. If I would remember to tweet, because I have that app on my phone, I would tweet, God has a plan. He always has a plan. So many times our circumstances can mislead us to believe that there's no divine plan, that what we're going through is totally out of the hands of the Lord. It seems sometimes that the things that we're feeling and going through are dictating the end of the line, the end of our fruitfulness, the end of our life, the end of ministry or hope. We can't see how the things that we're going through could possibly, possibly turn to glory or how God could use these circumstances. They seem so scary and the path ahead looks ominous and dark. When I come to places like these in my own life, and there have been numerous times, I reflect on John chapter six. This is one of my favorite stories, but I say that about a lot of passages. I'm just gonna warn you. But I love John chapter six, where the multitude is coming and they're hungry and they've been with Jesus. And Jesus turns to Philip and he says, Philip, where can we get enough bread to feed all these people? And it sends Philip into an absolute panic. I think Philip was having a great time with Jesus. He was oblivious to the dangers of his circumstances when all of a sudden Jesus said that and he's like, big crowd, no food, no resources, no town near, not enough bread, not enough money. And all of a sudden he was aware of all the deficiencies. But John tells us that Jesus said this because he had a plan, because he always has a plan. And John records that he said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was about to do. Any of your circumstances that you're going through, I want you to know that God has shown you the deficiency, that God has shown you the impossibility. It's God, it's Jesus that's pointing it out to you. But you know why? It's a test. And it's only a test because he himself knows what he's about to do. And why is he testing you? He's testing you to show you the greatness of who he is because you've got some lapses. You know, a test is showing us what we need to know and what we need to study. And this test is showing you what you need to know about God and what you need to study about his character. Jesus was about to show Philip that he is greater than any deficiency, that there is not one place that Philip could go, that Jesus has not already been and already made preparations for. We're told that when Jesus multiplied this fish and bread, that everyone ate as much as they wanted. Everyone was satisfied. There were leftovers and the food was so delicious that the multitude followed Jesus across the Galilee to get more of it. God has a plan. He always has a plan. This principle was really amplified in my life on March 23rd. I want you to know that on the 26th, I was leaving for South Carolina to do a retreat. And then after that, to visit my grandchildren. And so I had had this um, tooth thing since, um, 
sometime around Christmas. I got an electric toothbrush, and when I used it, it just hurt this one portion of my mouth. And so I'm, you know, brushing, going, oops, skip that one with my electric toothbrush. And I was thinking, man, this electric toothbrush is, you know, so strong, I'm going to give it a break. And it was one of those things, whenever I told Brian, oh, my tooth hurts, he goes, your tooth hurts, I got a pain here, I got a pain here. And you're like, okay, I don't have any pain, you know, I don't have a problem. But it, it, kept, it kept getting worse, and I felt like this rich... And I'm one of those people, this is what I get from my dad. I mean, my dad, I would like, oh, look at this mole. They go, ooh, let me get a needle and tweezers and remove it for you. Um, seriously, one, a couple of those things I actually fainted, so he stopped. But, you know, I felt this ridge, and I thought, oh, you know what? I'm just going to get, like, a screwdriver and just kind of knock it off. And then I thought, you know, that might not be a good idea. I probably, probably should go to the dentist. Now, remember, that's Christmas, right? So I made an appointment for March 23rd. So I go in and I sit down in the chair and the dentist comes in and he says, oh my goodness, this is bad. This is really bad. I don't know what this is. I've never seen this before. This is bad. This is really bad. Now I want you to know that my dentist has has been a dentist for over 30 years and he leaves and he comes back and he says, I know what you have. You have post-traumatic tooth syndrome. He said, you did something that traumatized your tooth when you were a kid, sometime between the ages of 10 and 20. Can you remember anything? And I'm like, oh, I fell out of a tree. I got hit with a baseball bat, got hit with a baseball because I played uh, baseball. I got hit by a car on my bicycle. Oh, my mom and I were in an accident when I was 12. He goes, never mind. (laughs) One of those. One of those. So he says, it's either going to be a root canal, a root you know that thing, a root thing. Yeah, that thing. Or it's going to be an extraction. Now, do you know what my retreat theme was? No fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love in his own mind. And you know what? I could hear the spirit of God saying, don't be afraid. No fear. No fear. And I'm like, okay, not a problem. So I'm in Irvine. He sends me to um, an endonist down in Long Beach. You know, I'm driving, it's traffic. I get there just five minutes late to my appointment. I'm, I'm ready. He takes it, he looks at it. It was really cute because he goes, your father sat in this chair. And I'm like, oh, probably a lot. My dad had bad teeth. Oh, you know. And he starts working on my tooth. And you know what he says? This is bad. This is very bad. So I said to him, I said, okay. Um, he said, but I, I fixed it. It's a temporary fix. I said, good. Will it last till after Easter? And he says, no. I said, oh, well, how long will it last? He said, mm, maybe a day or two. A day or two. Well, I've got to go to South Carolina. I know. And I said, so root canal or extraction? And he's like, extraction. It has to come out. I'm like, oh, okay. Extraction. No fear. Extraction. So then I have to go back to the dentist, you know, back in Irvine. And he's, this is a Monday. You know how you have your own plans and <laughs> none of them work out? Like washing clothes and packing. So I go back and he says, um, I made an appointment with you for the oral surgeon who's down the street. So he walks me down the street to the oral surgeon. I go in there, I wait. The oral surgeon looks at me and he says, um, extraction. I am said, okay, you know, I've got a really busy schedule sometime after Easter. He said, tomorrow morning. 6.30, tomorrow morning, 6.30. You know, you don't even have a, a chance to think. I've never even had braces. I don't have any, any cavities, not one cavity in my whole mouth, but my tooth falling apart because of some traumatic stress thing that happened when I was a kid. 
So anyway, the next morning they put the cup on me and I said, I heard you're going to knock me out. And he's like, oh, you don't need to be knocked out. You can stay awake for this one. I said, no, really, I'm okay if you knock me out. That's perfectly all right. And he said, you don't need to be, it's, it's going to be great. So I'm there and all I can think is it's no fear. And I'm aware of everything that's going on and they're talking and he's like, you're going to feel a pounding. It's like, oh, you know, and then you're going to feel a yank. Oh, 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 oh. And, you know, you should like, I'm praying like, God, I can't wait till this thing is over. But I'm thinking, but when this is over, I'm going to be without a tooth, you know, and that's the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. And so he's, they're, they're doing this extraction and they're, they're, you know, they're, they, they, they pull out my tooth. And the whole time, it's like every time I started to get afraid, I felt this grip on my arm. And I'm like, Lord, Lord, you're with me. And then I looked and it was the blood pressure cuff. But good enough. Good enough. Lord has his ways. And it was no fear. No fear. And yet this whole time when it was like, I'd hear the Lord say, no fear, I'd be, oh, root canal, nothing. I get to keep my tooth. And, you know, extraction. Oh, Lord, you're going to come through while he's extracting. He's like, you know what? We don't need to extract that. No, they took that thing. It's gone. And so, and then they give me a flipper tooth. So I've got, you know, my fake tooth. And so I'm really excited. I've got my fake tooth. I'm going to put it in. I'm going to get used to it. And then the oral surgeon has the audacity to tell me that I can't wear it for a week. And I'm like, wait, I'm speaking at a retreat. And it's one of my front it's my incisor or canine, if you'd rather. I mean, it's my tearing tooth. It likes to tear up meat and chew on bones. And now it's gone. And so I have to go to South Carolina without a tooth. And, you know, you're like, oh, thank you. Here's my ticket for the plane. Thank you very much. You know, and people smile at you. I want you to know I practice in the mirror how to smile. Because you've seen me smile. I do this. You know, and so now I've got to, you know, I've got to lose the Chuck Smith smile and get another one. You know, like, how did Mona Lisa do it? The mysterious smile where you don't know if Cheryl's really filled with the spirit or not. You know, and so there it is. And you know, South Carolina, they tell me, I land and they're like, this is our biggest retreat ever. We usually have 200. We've got 400. I'm like, oh, great, great, great. Yeah, you're happy to hear it. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I've got to speak before these women without a tooth, you know? And, you know, I had people telling me, don't worry, you're going to South Carolina. It's going to be all right. There are people missing teeth. <laughs> so they gave me a free day. So... I went to the 99 cent store and Walmart because I figured if they're missing teeth, that's where they're going to be. I didn't see one person missing teeth. They all had their, you know, their uppers and their lowers. And I, you know, cause I was looking cause all of a sudden, you know, when you're missing a tooth, you're aware of everybody else's teeth. So, you know, I do the retreat and, you know, I'm thinking, I don't want to flash them and then go, She's missing a tooth. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to tell them at the very beginning my, my tooth issue and how the Lord said, fear not to me. And um, I, I was able to do the retreat. And this one woman came up to me and said, what would you have done had you not lost that tooth? You wouldn't have any illustrations. I'm like, no, I've got better ones. <laughs> that was just the most current illustration of fear not. But, you know, the interesting thing that the Lord was showing me is when he says fear not, it's not that 
we're going to be exempt from a trial. When he says fear not, it's not that we're going to be delivered from, but we're going to be delivered in and we're going to be delivered through. In Isaiah, God says, when you walk through the river, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. And the fire won't have any power on you. It's not the exemption from, it's his presence in his power through the fear not. And this is the principle that we see working because God has a plan. He always has a plan. And I get to wear my flipper now. It's this tooth. But this principle is all throughout our study. No doubt the nation of Judah could not see the divine plan of God as they saw the end of the throne of David. It's cut off. But how could that be? Because God has promised that there would never fail, never fail to have on the throne of David a king. So, so what's happening? Josiah is the last of a godly king. After him, his son Jehoahaz reigns three months, and we're told that he does evil in the sight of the Lord, and he's deposed and carried away to Egypt, where he dies. Next is Eliakim. Jehoiah's brother is made king, and his name is changed to Jehoiakim. This is where things get really confusing, right? And he reigns 11 years in Jerusalem, and he makes a treaty with Nebuchadnezzar that he will serve, that he'll be a vassal of King Nebuchadnezzar, but he breaks that treaty when Egypt seems to be strong. And Babylon comes, and they take him captive, uh, along with many of the captives of um, Ju- uh, many of the men and craftsmen of Judah. And he's executed in Babylon. Next, we have Jehoiakim. The C-H is hard, like chemistry. Jehoiakim, he becomes king. He's a young thing. He reigns three months. He does evil. And he's taken to Babylon, and he's imprisoned there. In Babylon, he has a son, Shealtiel, and after years of being in prison, he's released, and he is allowed and even invited to dine at the king's table and to sit among the exiled kings. The last king to reign on the throne of Judah is Zedekiah, and he, like his brothers and his um, uncles, uh, does evil in the sight of the Lord. He ignores the warning of the prophet Jeremiah. He hardens his heart against the word of God. And when Jerusalem is finally besieged by the Babylonians, he tries to go out at night with his guard just to escape, uh, to escape the evil that he's perpetrated on the rest of Jerusalem. He's going to leave the rest of those people to the Babylonians, such a hireling. But he's caught as he goes through a hole in the wall with his advisors, guards, and family. He is taken before Nebuchadnezzar, and there he has to watch each one of his sons and guards and advisors executed before his eyes, and then his eyes are gouged out, and he's taken to Babylon. All his descendants are murdered. There can be no descendant of Zedekiah ever to reign on the throne. The nation itself, Judah, is completely corrupted. Those left in the land, we're told in Jeremiah 44, were 
pouring out oblations to the queen of heaven. They said to Jeremiah, well, yeah, we serve your God, but we're also serving the queen of heaven because you know what? All these atrocities and everything came to us ever since we obeyed your word and stopped serving the queen of heaven. So they've got this duality in their worship. There's this hardening of their hearts against God. They go to Jeremiah towards the end of the book of Jeremiah after uh, most of the people have been exiled to Babylon. And they're like, tell us what God wants us to do. We'll do whatever God says. When Jeremiah says to him, the word of the Lord is to stay in the land and God will defend you. They're like, no, you're not really a prophet. We don't like that word. We're going to Egypt. They, they won't even obey the word of the Lord. It's all feigned. We're told that even the priests and the temple are polluted with idolatry. In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel is allowed to see in the heart and mind of the priests and um, those who ruled the temple. And he sees all sorts of pornography and degradation. The nation is absolutely destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. The people are exiled forcibly to Babylon. The temple is ransacked and everything, including the temple, is burned down. It is seemingly impossible at this point for the promises of God to ever, ever be fulfilled. But God has given promises about the nation of Israel that Judah and Israel will be a nation again. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about the glory of the Lord departing. I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 12. And yet at the end, and I think it's Ezekiel 44, he talks about the glory of the Lord returning to his temple. So you have in the book of Ezekiel, the departure of God's spirit and the destruction of Jerusalem. But the end of Ezekiel is all about the Lord coming back to Israel, coming back to his temple, and about the great restoration that he will bring. Why? Because God has a plan. God always has a plan. He has a promise and a plan for a son of David to sit on the throne. And according to Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10, the root of Jesse, it was cut off so that it would go back to the purity of David. The stump that was cut down. There's a promise of restoration of the land, a promise of rebuilding the temple because God has a plan. And his plan is to cleanse the people. The plan is to sanctify his people. The plan is to bring his people to repentance and chasten them again so he can bless them. Do you know that God wants to bless you? He, want, he is a blessing God. We're told over and over again that he's a blessing God. In Numbers chapter 6, the priests are told to put God's name upon the people and to bless them. And to say over the people, the Lord bless thee and keep thee and cause his face to shine upon thee. God wants to bless us. God wants to bless those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. God wants to bless his people with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, every blessing you can conceive of. But we move ourselves from a place of being able to be blessed. We move ourselves by pride. We move ourselves by sin. We move ourselves by self-will. When we think our will is better than God's will, 
We move from the plan and purposes and blessings of God. So what does God do? He brings chastening in our life, not to destroy us. He lets suffering and hardship come in our lives, not to destroy us, but to get us back in line to the place where he can bless us and begin to put us in the smack dab center of his blessed and glorious plans. And this is what he was doing even through the Babylonian captivity. He was working in his people to bring them back into his plan, his glorious plan. He was working repentance in Jehoiakim in prison, just as he did it to King Manasseh when he was in prison in Babylon. He was producing a godly seed for the throne of Israel, producing, purifying the seed of David, humbling the seed of David, readying the seed of David to have the Messiah come through the line. He is bringing purity back to the priestly line through Ezekiel, a priest of the temple who is exiled in Jerusalem, I mean, exiled in Babylon, speaking to the people about purity, giving them the word of God. He is working on behalf of his people. He is allowing Babylon to fall to the Medes and Persians, according to scripture and fulfilling his word in Isaiah 44, that Cyrus would sit as emperor of the world. And not only is he completing his plan, but not one Jew is killed when Cyrus takes over Babylon. Babylon, this forceful, dangerous kingdom is seized, overthrown without the loss of life. Amazing. Only God, no bloodshed. Every Jew is safe. In fact, um, one of the historians said that the Jews went to sleep with Belteshazzar as king and awoke to Cyrus on the throne. It happened in a night, and most of the Babylonians and those in Babylon did not even know about the change until the next day. So peaceful was the change. At the same time that Cyrus takes the throne without bloodshed, we're told that God begins to stir up the heart and mind of Cyrus to allow the Jews to return after the 70 years of captivity to the land of Israel, to rebuild their temple, to begin the sacrifices again. And he also asked that intercession be made for him. Why? Because God has a plan. God always has a plan. God had written a letter through Jeremiah to the exiles, the very first exiles in Babylon. And in that letter, God spoke to them, Jeremiah 29, 11, And he said, I know the plans I have for you. God has plans to give you plans for good, to give you a future and a hope. These are God's plans, plans of peace, shalom, good, health, beneficial, beneficial plans. From our 
text this week, we see how God's plans do not fail. God did everything he said he would do. God raised up Cyrus, put it in his heart. And of those who volunteered to go, we have Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiakim. No throne awaits Zerubbabel in Jerusalem. There's no palace. There's no, there's no prominency. He's going as an exile, an underling. He has to lead a group of exiles. And, and let me tell you a little bit about these exiles. There are perfumers, priests, goldsmiths, and farmers. These are the people, not warriors, not advisors, not builders, not civil engineers, but perfumers, priests, goldsmiths, and farmers to restore a temple, to rebuild and reestablish the promises of God in Israel. He has to take these people over 500 miles across dangerous terrain. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he has to clear away piles and piles of rubble that have, that have sat for 70 years, that are overgrown, that were destroyed and ruined. He has to reestablish and unify the tribes of Israel. He has to initiate again the sacrifices and worship of God. And he has to encourage the people and keep them pure so that the promises of God can be given and seen and received. Arriving in Jerusalem, we learn that the conditions are worse than anticipated. The ravage is greater, massive Boulders are turned over and everything is burned with overgrowth. Not only that, but there is opposition in the land. First, those in the land come to Zerubbabel with the temptation to compromise. Let us help you. And we worship the same God that you do and these other gods. So there is again that temptation to fall back to idolatry, the very idolatry that led the people of Israel and Judah into oppression. There are pagans wanting to help them build the temple. And then there are others who are utterly opposed to any temple for God being rebuilt. The exiles themselves are inexperienced, vulnerable to temptation, and disunited. We're told in Ezra 3.12 that when the foundation of the temple is finally laid, Some are cheering, but some are crying because all they can do is compare it to the old temple. And they're like, it's smaller. It's not as good. It's never going to be the same. Why even bother or try? Some of these Jews are even oppressing the other Jews, taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. And there is a tendency to give up on the building of the temple and put all their concentration on their own houses. They become very self-absorbed and self-centered, which is always a temptation. But in spite of these conditions, Zerubbabel reestablishes the sacrifices to God. He is building a bridge in a relationship to God. 
and making sure that the sins of the people are taken care of and that there can be unbroken fellowship with God so God's blessing can come. The government forces come in and they stop the building of the temple, but they do not stop the daily sacrifices. But even in these circumstances, God has a plan. He always has a plan. God allows the opposition, much like he allowed the people to go out into the wilderness without bread and without fish. God raises up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to speak to the people, to speak to Yeshua, the priest, and to encourage Zerubbabel. They are to begin building even before the opposition is removed. And what does Zerubbabel and Yeshua do when they hear this word? We're told that they both rise up and they begin to build. God uses these circumstances to show the people their need of his presence for prosperity in building the temple for any spiritual work, their need for him, for their personal lives, for health, for financial stability, for warmth, their need for him as a nation for survival and agricultural prosperity. Through the study of Jehoiakim to Zerubbabel, we learn four great things about God's plan. And here they are. And we've gone over them a little bit already. But here it is. Number one, God's plans are eternal. They're eternal. They're not just for the immediate, though they take in the immediate. And he's working things in the immediate. Just like Martha said, I know, I know in the resurrection, my brother will rise again. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha saw it only in the eternal, and Jesus said, no, it's also in the immediate because I'm the one who's going to resurrect the dead. It's me. I'm the life. But they're eternal. God is working about eternal plans. You know, we want quick fixes, don't we? And quick fixes can often lead to greater problems. Have you ever tried to do a quick fix and just had one thing after another go wrong with your quick fix. I did meet one woman and she came to me. She goes, heard about your tooth. This is South Carolina. Heard about your tooth. Well, I got up this morning and I wanted to come to this conference, but my tooth fell out. So I said, devil, you're not going to hurt me. And I put super glue on it and put that thing right back in. (laughs) Quick fix. I told that to my dentist and he said, super glue is the nightmare of every dentist. We're told in Ephesians 1.11 that God is working all things out to the counsel of his will. He's making everything fit into his eternal will. Every king, every president, every senator, every congressman, whether they believe it or not, God is using them for the glory and the counsel of his will. Well, and what is God's ultimate eternal plan? Well, we're told in Daniel chapter 2, it's to make all the kingdoms that have ever ruled into chaff and to build a mountain through Jesus, the, the stone that the builders 
rejected, to build out of Jesus a mountain that will fill the whole earth. Someday, someday, very soon, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. This is the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan is to put Jesus on the throne of David, on the throne of the world, and reconcile everything to him. And in that day, the mountains will bring forth singing. The trees of their field will clap their hands. The lion will lay down with the lamb. And the ox and the wolf will graze together and nothing on the earth will harm. All pollution will be gone. I believe even the dodo bird is going to be restored. <laughs> Those things that have gone out of, out of um, sight, that have gone into extinction, God is going to take away every bit of pollution and nuclear fallout. And he is going to make all things new and restore the order. His plans are eternal. They're eternal. But not only are his plans eternal. Remember, I told you that there's four great things. God's plans are good. They are good. Good. They're beneficial. They're of the highest order. They're pure. They're wonderful. They're, they're what we all long for within us. His plans are the best plans. Oswald Chambers said, God always does the best work. His work is never inferior. And if there was a better way to do anything, he would choose that way because he always chooses the best ways. As it says in Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than our ways. They're better than our ways. His ways are superior. God's plans are the best plans. He alone is wise. He alone knows the end from the beginning. And in Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. What God is doing is good. Because he is good, because his nature is good, he can only do good. God can't do bad. He can't do evil. He can only do righteous and good and beneficial. In Romans 8, 28, you know the scripture so well. We're told that God works all things together, weaves it together for our good and for the good of those that love him and are called according to his plans and purposes. God's plans are are good, and they're leading to good things. These are good plans. Remember, again, Jeremiah 29, 11, good plans, plans of peace. That word is shalom, and shalom means more than just peace. It means health and benefit and good. Thirdly, God's plans are guaranteed. They cannot fail. God's plans will prevail. They cannot fail. God accomplishes everything that he says he will do. In Joshua 23, 14, Joshua says, You know and you have seen that not one good word of what God has promised has failed. 
God's plans can not and will not fail. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. There is absolutely no possibility of failure with God's plans. It's the only stock and the only investment that's safe. That's guaranteed a return. That's guaranteed dividends and to bear interest. The only guaranteed. Whatever happens to us, God has already worked it out to the great counsel of his glorious plans. No matter what it is, he's got a plan in this. He is doing something in this that will not fail. That is good. That is part of the eternal plan. How exciting for you. How exciting for you. You are part of an eternal, good, unfailing plan of God. Whatever the circumstances. In fact, just stop right now. Just stop. Close your eyes. I'm getting bossy. I love it. It's because I'm missing a tooth. I get bossy without teeth. Lord, we lift up whatever that circumstance is, that seems that it's come to do us in. Lord, we just lift it up. If that's you and you've got something in your life right now, lift your hands up. Lift it up to Jesus. Lift it up right now. Lord, we give you this thing to use for the glorious counsel of your will. We give it to you for the greatest glory. We willingly give it to you. We want to see what your plans are in this. We want to see the glorious thing that you're working through this. And Lord, we agree together that you are good and you do good, that your plans are eternal. And we thank you that you have allowed us to be part of your eternal plans. We thank you that this thing has come for good and not for evil to give us a future and a hope. And the end of this thing will be peace and glory and prosperity. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Lord, we thank you so much that your plans will not fail, not even in this, that they cannot and they will not fail, that you are going to turn this thing around to absolute glory. And we await your move. We await your move with anticipation in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now there's a fourth thing. That was just a short interruption. God's plans are accomplished by God alone. It's not up to you to make the plans of God happen. Are you excited about that? I'm so excited about that. If I had to spin the world, we would be in so much trouble because sometimes I sleep in. And I'd be like, oh no, I gotta catch up. And then we'd be spinning too fast. I'm so glad that God's plans, what he's gonna do are up to him, not to me. They're not dependent on me. When Zerubbabel looked over the city of Judah, uh, the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, and he looked at all that rubble and he knew that he had come back to rebuild the temple. It must have been overwhelming. The people themselves being disunified, the opposition coming against him. But the Lord raised up the prophet Zechariah to speak to him so that Zechariah would know 
that the plans of God were not dependent on him. And Zechariah, speaking, speaking the word of God to Zechariah said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, we're going to do this again, and I'm going to say this, and I want you to say it out loud with me. But when we come to the name Zerubbabel, I want you to put your own name in there. Are you willing? Are you ready? Okay. Not by might. Okay, repeat after me, I guess. Thought we'd do it together, but if it's going to be like this. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before? Okay, now we're going to do this again. I know you're not used to this because I never make you talk, but I'm making you talk now because you've been so unresponsive to me and made me feel like I'm all alone up here. No offense, I love you all, but a couple of amens every once in a while would totally be a blessing. (laughs) So we're going to say before and then your name, okay? Before. You could do that better and you know you could. Let's do it one more time. Before. Could we just do it one more time with feeling? Before? Okay, they got it. You, some of you. Do you want this removed? Okay, then let's do it with feeling. Before? Yes. You shall become a plane. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. He shall bring forth the capstone with shouts. We'll be unified later. (laughs) But the prophet continues. The hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Have you laid the foundation? Yes, you've accepted Jesus Christ. This means that God is now working in your circumstances because he's got a plan. And his plans are not according to our strength, our experience, our force, our ability, but they are according to the power of God's spirit and according to his wisdom and his ability to get them done. I want you to know that the spirit of the holy God, the spirit of truth is the strongest force and power and person in the universe because it is the spirit and person of God almighty. And it's by his spirit that he is going to accomplish his plans, not according to our spirit, not according to our force or our ability or our education, but according to himself, because his plans are too important to leave with us. 
and they're eternal and they're good and they're unfailing. I don't know what circumstances are in your life right now. I don't know. Maybe they're overwhelming. Sometimes they come in like a flood. You're all right with it. And then all of a sudden, another wave washes over you. And you're like, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I want you to know that God has a plan. He always has a plan. And when those things come in and they seem so hard, so destructive, so strong, so dark, so overwhelming, and you feel like you'll be overcome And maybe today you need this word and maybe tomorrow you need this word. Don't you hate it when you get the word ahead of time and you think you've got a savings? You know what I mean? When you get that extra money, you're like, oh yes, extra money. And then you get the bill the next day for just that amount. Like darn, good, thanks, but oh, goodbye Nordstrom's rack. You know that feeling? But God is providing ahead of time. Maybe you need to know this today. But maybe it's a word for tomorrow to put in your savings account. But you need this. You need to know that God has a plan. Whatever you're going through, God has a plan. You need to know that he always has a plan. There's never time that there's not a plan for your life. That the circumstances in your life, God is using and working together for your good. To bring about something glorious. Something that needed to happen this way. Maybe not for you so much. as Maybe for a witness for the the multitude. That they might know that Jesus can multiply five fish. uh, Five loaves and two fish to feed a multitude of over 5,000. Maybe they need to see it. Maybe it's for the other disciples that they need greater faith. And God has raised you up to be the capstone of his grace and to show them what faith can do. Maybe that's part of the plan. But let me tell you this. God is working an eternal plan because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That God is working a good, good plan because he is good and he does good. That God's plan is guaranteed for glory. There is absolutely no way it can fail. But it will be accomplished. And it will be accomplished not by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. Someday, someday, we will be in glory together. Before the throne of Jesus Christ as he reigns from Jerusalem, and we will have no need of the sun because Jesus will be the glory and the light of the entire earth. And we will turn to each other and say, let's go up to the house of the Lord, for he will teach us of his ways. And we will go to Jerusalem with singing and all sighing, And all pain will be done away with. And the joy of the Lord will be so great that we will not be able to recall the hardships that we suffered on earth. But we will know that our pockets are full of precious gems. And we will wonder, where did we get all these precious gems? We will dip our feet in the water 
of the river that flows from the temple all the way down to the Dead Sea, healing those salty waters. And we'll look at the fishermen stretching their nets all the way from Engedi to the Dead Sea because of how great the fish and life are in that sea. And we will eat fruit from the trees that grow on each side of the river. And we will take the leaves off to make the best tea for the healing of the nations. And nations will take their guns and ammunition and make them into farming instruments. And the nations will learn war no more. And the glory of the Lamb will be felt and seen and visible. And our eyes will look on him whom we have loved, whom we have believed in. And our fellowship will be rich. And we will sing the song of the Lamb with joy. And we'll all sound so good. So good. God's plans are eternal. God's plans are good. God's plans are unfailing. And God's plans will be accomplished by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we stand in awe of you. Lord, in those moments, those lapses of faith, Those times when darkness seems to be so overwhelming. Speak into our heart the words of life that you have a plan. You always have a plan. Speak to us as you did to Zerubbabel. That it's not by might and it's not by power. But by your spirit you will do these things. And this mountain before each one of us will become a plain. And we will shout grace grace because we don't deserve it because you did it without us because you're so great and so wonderful oh god we look forward to the day when you come and you reign from mount zion and all is made right and so we say come quickly lord jesus and accomplish those things that you wrote before the foundation of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.